Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 16th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Excited to inform you that we will be closing our December issue today, and we will have material from it up tomorrow and Wednesday, including a really, really, really excellent post-election analysis by our own associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Thank you very much. Uh, A terrific piece by senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And a review of Rod Dreher's Live Not By Lies by our executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And with us today, we are so excited to have our one of our favorite guests, superstar, you know, sort of like the, the, the superstar of the election season, MSNBC's Steve Kornacki. Hi, Steve. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Um, okay, Steve, uh, with all this um, really amazing news this morning about the Moderna vaccine following on the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine apparently 94% effective according to the first trials and Wildly useful because unlike the Pfizer vaccine, it doesn't have to be stored at negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit or something or Celsius or something, um, which suggests that its distribution will be vastly easier and less cumbersome. Um, Do you see this having any effect on the... Let's say if, if we look at, if we consider sort of the political mood of the country in the wake of the election... Is there any way to sort of either quantify or imagine what news like this can do for the national mood? Well, it's a it's a good question because I'm still trying to figure out not just how, but but whether COVID actually affected the the election in the first place. You know, it's it, it's strange to me just given how obviously this this has changed all of our lives. We could stipulate, I think, all, all of that, and yet. Um, I, I wonder if an election that, that took place without COVID ever happening would have looked any different in terms of the, the turnout, the result, the breakdown of the votes than, than it actually did. So um, I, on the one hand, I, I, you know, I kind of think, you know, politics maybe just kind of continues as it's continued. But on the other hand, um, I look at how some of the major events of the last year, I'll give you an example. You know, I think you're in New York City, too, you know. Um, you know, this is a 85 percent Joe Biden city. And when the election result was announced uh, two Saturdays ago, it was a beautiful fall Saturday. It was 70 degrees. The city had overwhelmingly voted for Joe Biden, didn't like Donald Trump. The election result got announced. And there was I feel COVID was part of this. There was just this flood of people into the streets to celebrate. And I think part of what the impetus for that, my guess would be, was, you know, being kind of cooped up for months. And here was a reason to get out. And I think I feel that COVID has kind of provided a few of those opportunities over the last six months or so. And, and maybe as we get back to normal, um, you know, we all, whatever, whatever the particular impetus is, we won't need those excuses anymore. So, Noah, in your piece, you, you delineate the bizarre phenomenon of this election and very meticulously uh, the piece that we will be uh, putting out on the website tomorrow, uh, this kind of surgical strike on Donald Trump that took him out, but seems to have left Republicans in a shockingly good position in the House and the Senate, and given given what everybody expected, and at the state legislative uh, level. Um, there's been some talk over the last couple of days that there are COVID cross currents that particularly down ballot in some of these states 
that the anti-masking philosophy may have benefited in state legislative races and may have benefited Republicans in states that either haven't really been hit yet or states that are just simply more libertarian in their leanings and sympathies and find the strong arm of government, you know, oppressive. I mean, it's certainly a reasonable theory. It's it's not one that I think is supported by a whole lot of evidence that you could say is is statistical and not merely anecdotal. Um, but it's as reasonable enough a theory. I mean, my completely <clears throat> unscientific analysis of this election was that you should probably spot Donald Trump a couple of points in the states that had consistently failed to capture the entire Republican vote in the last couple of cycles. And that works out, but it's not exactly anything that you can duplicate. It's not duplicable. It's not a, you know, it's not a prescription for analysis. And also that there was something of a red wave that was not forecast that crashed into the blue wave and kind of negated what would otherwise have been a very good year for Democrats down ballot. Republicans outperformed in rural areas where Donald Trump drove up turnout markedly, and Republicans benefited from that down ballot. But Republicans also outperformed the president in urban places where masking is is not necessarily a taboo. In fact, it's it's you know, prescribed and uh, there's you know a stigma around not wearing it. And we don't have much evidence that people are actually frustrated by that. Like if you go to a reasonably blue part of your state, um, you'll see people walking around in masks on the street outside, whereas you probably won't see that in redder portions of the country. So, I mean, again, more anecdotes than statistics. But as you said, you know, Republicans outperformed just about every metric. And I think Steve can speak more to this, the the extent to which Republicans managed to hold every seat that was a toss-up, according to Cook Political Report, or at least are holding on, held them or are leading as we speak in those toss-up states at the House level, managed to hold every vulnerable seat on the Senate level. And more importantly, in for the next decade, built on their majorities at the state legislative level, um, whereas they're now comparable, if not a little bit better position than they were after the 2010 midterms. That was not forecast. And there's any number of uh, you know reasons you can attribute that to. Democrats, particularly the Democrats who lost, say that socialism was a problem, um, defund the police was a problem, the progressives on their left are a problem, the progressives say something quite different, obviously, um, but you know we're still working out who is to blame. What nobody is confused about right now is that there is blame to go around, and Democrats consistently underperformed the polling that, at least down farther down the ballot, that they expected to benefit from. Steve, um- this is a, the interesting point here is if I can brag on you privately in, in emails between us, you were you were very uncomfortable by the kind of polling consensus in September and October. Uh, and and it, there was something about it that was sticking in your craw. And it was very hard to say what could be wrong. I mean, because it didn't matter what the polling modality was. It didn't matter what, you know, whether it was live person interviews or, or, you know, on the, you know, uh, only on the, this or through this or that or other thing, like the polls were all sort of converging on this uh, Biden landslide and these uh, relatively speaking landslide. And then these kind of these results in the Senate races. Um, And you, there was just this 
you were just nagged like that it, it didn't quite compute. And that feeling was obviously just, you know, turned out to be entirely justified. Can you capture what it was that was going on that made you go, yeah, I, I just, there's, it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, you know, things I, I wish I had, you know, said on television <laughs> instead of just an email. Um, obviously it shows the degree of my confidence in that, but it's doubt. It was doubt, and it, it was doubt for a couple of reasons. Number one, it, it was the familiarity of that was taking hold in in kind of the sort of political media. I, word for word, it was stuff that was said in 2016. Um, I, I would watch a poll get interpreted and kind of you know sort of sent through the the news cycle, and I this is I remember this exact same thing happening in 2016. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, not only did you have polls that had, you know, Biden up, you know, 10 points nationally, up 17 in Wisconsin, or, or that was the, the, the biggest one you saw, but it had up in all these key swing states. You started getting, when they would poll a state like a West Virginia or a North Dakota or one of these, you know, sort of out-of-the-way places that, that isn't going to be a factor in the Electoral College, but they would take one or two polls, you would also see significant movement there what seemed like significant movement, like, oh, Biden's only losing by 15 in North Dakota. It should be 35. There's another, you know, we had polls like that in 2016. I mean, I remember news cycles in 2016 where Kansas was six points. I remember news, you know, we'd seen this before. And it occurred to me, I said, you know, not only do we see this in 2016, we saw this, and I talked about this the last time I was on the podcast, we saw this in 2018, but we didn't really dwell on it after, after the midterm because Democrats did take the House. They took the House in a very specific way. They didn't win a single district in 2018 that uh, Trump had received more than 45 percent of the vote in. You know, these were all very close districts that they they flipped. They flipped every Clinton district and a number of sort of marginal districts on the other side. But the polling misses in 2018 were still there in Ohio and in Michigan, in Florida, for that matter. And when I really started to think about it, so we also saw this in 2014. We saw these polling misses in 20. We have seen a, a type of voter consistently now. This is the fourth consecutive cycle, as it turns out, that's been missed in polling. And we say this is not just a, it's not just a polling miss where it could go in any direction. This is this is a specific type of voter that's getting missed. And um, I, I, I had real doubt that I, I had a real sense that that was, you know, it's the stuff you're not supposed to pay attention to. The energy that's that's out there, the, cr- the crowd sizes and the um it's the stuff you're not supposed to pay attention to, but I, I did. I, you know, I drove around a bit in October just to get out. I live in New York City, just renting a car and driving around on the weekends, going out to you know Pennsylvania or something. And you know, it is. You just see the homemade Trump signs, just as you saw them in 2016, were still there. Um, and I really got the sense that there was this this disconnect between suburban slash urban metropolitan America and sort of small town Trump America, whatever you want to call it. Did that that was still very much there. And it didn't mean Trump was going to win, but it made me really suspicious that the polls were going to miss again like they had these last two. And that's that is what happened. The polls missed again, but not quite enough to to get Trump reelected. So um, I, I want to get a little personal uh, here because um, I was listening to the 538 podcast on that was aired on Thursday. Uh, Nate Silver and Galen Druk do this thing called Model Talk, and they were talking about what happened in the election and defending polling in general um, uh, in a way that I thought was extraordinarily specious, but I'll get to that in a minute. I, I, 
there was a moment at which when Silver said, you know, a lot of people think the polling was was bad. It really wasn't so bad. and It was actually kind of good. But the people that I particularly want to complain about, he sort of said, were, you know, there were these people who on Wednesday morning said polling is broken. Polling's broken. And uh, every the polling industry needs to go out of business. And um, those are arguments in bad faith. That was an argument in bad faith because obviously the people knew that polling wasn't broken. They just wanted to go after polling. Now that that was me. Uh, that was a subtweet of me because, as far as I know, I'm the only person who wrote that piece that came out Wednesday morning in the New York Post that said polling is broken. So um, I, I'm bringing this up only to say that it is astonishing to me that, uh, as as you say, Steve, 2012 was gotten wrong. That was gotten wrong again, you know, against Obama. So this is where we can start saying that this was not simply a shift away. It's all about the shy Trump voter. 2014, before there was a Trump voter, uh, was gotten entirely wrong at the Senate level. 2016 was missed, and 2018, particularly at the Senate level, was missed. And then you have 2020, where you have 17 points off on uh, Susan Collins, right, who was down by eight and won by nine, uh, 10 points off with uh, Lindsey Graham, who was up by three, won by 13. We have Florida. The shift was five points in the polling averages. Uh, Ohio was eight points because it was tied in the po- last polling average. And so the notion that because 48 of the 50 states went as as the polling averages would have suggested toward whichever candidate was going for the presidential level is entirely beside the point. I mean, this crisis is now four cycles old or five cycles old and uh, goes in both directions and indicates that with the exception of the eerily accurate, constantly eerily accurate over time, simple question about whether or not you approve of the president's job performance, which seems to track precisely with the results in most elections. Trump, in this case, was at like 46. It looks like he's gotten 47 or 47.3, 47.4. Bush was at 51, got reelected. Obama was at 51, got reelected, both with 51% of the vote. Uh, that, But that's not, are you choosing between this guy and the other guy? That's, do you approve of the president's performance or not? That's not a binary choice between two people and somehow just seems to get it right all the time. But we are in a, we are in a measurement crisis and in, in this one sense, Trump is correct. I don't think that the polls are suppression polls, like he says, and therefore illegal, and he should then be handed the presidency. But uh, the polls govern everything, including the Democratic response over the summer and the early fall to the social disorder and the riots and the stuff like that, because since all the polls were saying that there was no effect, and then we have to hear later from people who lose elections or are very tight in elections and stuff that this was killing them. They know better than the pollsters know what's going on in their districts. That's what they're there to do is understand what's going on in their districts. And so the polling was telling Democrats things that arguably cost may, may have, you know, ended up with them ending up with three or four seats uh, with a three or four seat majority in the house when they had a 20 seat majority in the house or whatever it was they, they had. That's like a 
significant. It's interesting. I mean, poll, no one, you know, it's just to get attacked for being, for being, uh, arguing in bad faith when the person who's attacking you was arguably arguing in bad faith was a little galling. And I generally don't do this, but I just wanted to vent. Yep. You know, can I just jump in? I, interestingly, the, the polls did capture, um, the increasing um, reluctance among Americans about the message of protesters over the summer. Um, at least they captured it to some degree. I mean, may- maybe, you know, if, if, if the, the, if the black lives matter movement dropped something like 12 points over the course of three months, I think um, maybe if you, you know, do what Noah did and uh, applying um, the, uh, you know, adding, adding a three or four points to, to that, um, so, so maybe, maybe the, the national opinion of, uh, the black lives matter movement, uh, fell by some, you know, 15 points or so instead, but it, but it wasn't connected to, um, people running for office. Exactly. It was, it was, that was just a question about wh- how you feel about the protests. And remember the black lives matter movement was still popular. I mean, according to that it dropped, but it was still, you know, I don't know, it's a 60% favorable or something. Right. And again, that's where it's not that you have shy Trump voters or you have, or, you know, whatever you have people say things that they think they're supposed to say, but then they don't act on them. You know, it's like you have people who say 90% of us wear masks when you know, 90% of people don't wear masks or, you know, claim that they don't smoke when they smoke that kind of thing. Like, uh, that social acceptability bias thing, which isn't just about Trump, like that's the mistake people are making. I think attitudinally, people know people are ashamed or don't have the vocabulary to say, I really don't like this, but they, they're they uncomfortable because they don't even really know why, or they're worried in some sense that what they're saying is retrogressive or bad, but they feel it anyway. But the Democrats have a real challenge ahead of them now after this election, and I, you're kind of seeing little glimmers of it uh, last week and this week, where they're talking a lot about where their messaging went went bad, right? But they they, they also need to talk about the policies that aren't landing, because those are two different things. And I think there's a tendency to say, well, if we just hadn't called things social, if, if we just hadn't, you know, if, if we'd said it's not socialist, but that doesn't change people's concerns about some of the policy issues, right? And I think it was really intriguing during the, the Democratic Democratic primary to watch the one candidate who was constantly throwing policies and plans at us, Elizabeth Warren, get hammered by voters. I mean, this has come up again with regard to college debt, right? This, you know, this idea that, you know, on, on day one, Biden should forgive uh, student loan debt. Uh, when when that was brought up by Warren during the primary, voters rightly said, wait, that turns all of us who worked hard and saved so our kids wouldn't have debt into chumps. I mean, there's a whole argument against it. Right now, I'm seeing a lot of discussion, and this includes the COVID messaging as well. It's it's all about what's the messaging, what's the messaging. I think one of the messages from voters in this election was we need someone in who has some power to acknowledge that the messaging that we've been receiving about how to deal with COVID has been inconsistent, at times hypocritical. Many of our, our elected officials have been hypocritical about it. People are confused. So one thing Biden could do as part of his transition in early days of his administration is to acknowledge that, to say, here's where we went wrong. Here's what we're going to do going forward. I think people People are really angry about that, and that does foment, as we look at you know, more lockdowns and more restrictions this winter, a lot of animosity on the part of Americans. Okay, I need to take a pause here and talk to you about the first of our two sponsors today, our old friend Quip. Because look, 
you know Quip, the electric toothbrush you hear about all the time. But right now, it's their slick, reusable floss pick you'll want to use next. The durable handle is easy to guide, restrings with a click, and comes with a compact mirror dispensing case for on-the-go. Plus, a single refill pod replaces over 180 single-use plastic flossers, so it's better for your teeth and the environment. If you're not a pick person, Quip also has refillable floss string that expands to clean. Pair your floss with the perfect electric toothbrush for adults and kids. Quip has the simple guiding features you need, like timed sonic vibrations with guiding pulses to help you brush better. You can personalize your routine with over nine premium brush colors, plus anti-cavity toothpaste for every taste in mint and watermelon. And now you can get amazing rewards just for brushing better every day. That Quip Smart Electric Toothbrush connects to a free Quip app so you can earn amazing rewards like free products and discounts as you track and coach better oral health habits two minutes twice a day. It also delivers brush head floss and toothpaste refills every three months from from $5. Shipping is free so you can save money and skip the store. Bring delight to your everyday brushing and join the over 5 million mouths brushing with Quip starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash commentary right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash commentary, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary, Quip. Better oral health made simple. So, Steve, I'm wondering, can you think of a more, I mean, is the political situation that we are now facing, Biden is president, he doesn't have a, a Democratic Senate, uh, that would make it him the first Democratic president in over a century to come in without a Democratic Senate. I mean, Nixon came in in 69 without a Republican Senate, but almost almost every case that we can name, Reagan brought in a Republican Senate, um, you know, like that, like this is a very rare set of circumstances. Um and this incredibly narrow margin in the House, and the prospect in 2020 of almost certainly, it's very, it's almost certain under these circumstances that Republicans will win the House and might strengthen their position in the Senate, something like that. Biden's coming in a very unusual political set of circumstances, right? Absent COVID, absent everything else. So where what is his what what running room does he have? What runway does he have? Yeah, I mean, it's you try to think of a every president in my lifetime I can think of who has been elected initially could claim some kind of a mandate from the results. Um, you know, you could look at even Bill Clinton coming in 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 1993. I think Republicans actually I think that's the last time the opposition party actually gained seats in the House as the candidate of the other party won the presidency. But Democrats still had overwhelming majorities in the House and Senate. And, you know, Democrats got unified control and Clinton, you know, could claim a mandate from that. Um, yeah, I think this is the first time you've, you've really got the House has clearly moved in the Republican direction here. And, and, and Biden's going to get a relatively, certainly in the Electoral College, narrow victory for the House. I think, it, first of all, it takes the discussion so much of the discussion pre-election about these sweeping, expansive sort of reforms that Democrats might have with the courts, with adding states, with that sort of thing. Um, I think so much of that was obviously just premised on Democrats having a this election being just a repudiation, not just of Trump, but of the Republican Party. I think that was the, the discussion. That was the expectation. And then you had this this sort of growing I don't know if consensus is the word, but certainly you had this growing conversation in Democratic circles of, hey, we're going to have we're going to have real capital here. 
We've got some bases. This is how Democrats were certainly talking about it. We've got some huge kind of structural issues that are um, that have become clear to us in the last decade. And we're going to use this capital to address those structural issues. And that's where you got into the court stuff. That's where you got into adding states, trying to change this composition of the Senate that way. That stuff, obviously, I think is is gone right now. This is a, this is a Senate that's going to you know, Joe Biden's going to be obviously re- requiring not just Republican cooperation here, but he's got to worry about keeping a guy like Joe Manchin on board. So it's it's. um. You know, maybe it's a bit like actually I'm trying to think here. It, maybe it's a bit like George W. Bush in the months before 9-11. You know, although Bush still had the House, still had the, he had the Senate by by literally it was 50-50 with Cheney breaking the tie for the first three months. And then James Jeffords from Vermont switched parties and they and they lost the Senate. Um, I remember that was that was those first few months when W. brought Ted Kennedy over to the White House with screen movies, tried to make Ted Kennedy a governing part. I think there might the, the the challenge for Biden might be to try to to identify. I mean, I don't know if we live in a world where it's even possible anymore, but to try to find he's going to try to have to find Republican cooperation, I think, to get obviously to get anything done. That will absolutely drive the progressive left out of their minds. Um, you've already seen some uh, evidence of that in the form of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's mean tweets towards Joe Manchin. I mean, there seems to be a, a desire on the part of the progressive left to mirror and mimic the Tea Party movement circa 2013, um, when they had minimal amount of authority, but nevertheless were promised their voters the universe. And when that universe failed to materialize, would blame saboteurs and wreckers on their own side. Which is a very, it was a useful tool for them. It was effective and, and worked. Um, but Steve, I mean, it's, it's dangerous to do predictions, and I don't want to get into the, the future here. But there is something of perhaps an irrational exuberance on the part of Republicans who find themselves at a better position than they thought they would be. They have, they're well positioned to retake both chambers of Congress in 2022. They're well positioned on redistricting. We talked about all that. But, you know, a lot of things can happen in the interim. Um, the, the assumption is that Republicans will manage to obstruct everything they don't like and will get none of the blame for it because Joe Biden is president uh, and Democrats nominally hold the House. But what can happen to uh, relieve Republicans of that notion in the next two years? What events, and there are probably many, but what events would cement Joe Biden's authority here, Joe Biden's mandate? I mean, could he govern as a a sort of a centrist politician and bring Republicans in to make them something of the governing party, too, and therefore allow them to share blame when negative events happen, as they certainly will, or a failure to materialize these societal shifts uh, somehow manifests in a backlash on the part of uh, voters in 2022? Are there events that could dampen Republican enthusiasm in the near future? Well, I just I, I look at it two ways. I think the the biggest challenge I think Republicans face in the sort of near term future electorally is what Trump what just happened in this election is that you had sort of a um, a lot of the sort of traditional Republican vote plus a Trump surge vote. And we saw this for, for two elections now in 2016 and 2020. I think it's clear. It's especially clear when you just look at a state like we've talked a lot about Wisconsin. It's clear in Pennsylvania. It's clear in a number of states that Trump has brought out a certain type of voter that demographically is is in a lot of ways a natural fit for the Republican Party, but that nobody else has brought out for Republicans. And I think it's an open question of whether the Republican Party 
is able to continue to bring those voters out. And I think that's when you look at like Susan Collins in Maine, who suddenly wins a runaway election, it's because there was a Trump surge vote among non-college white voters in northern and western Maine that was not picked up on in the polls. And while they were out there voting for Trump, they checked up Susan Collins' name. And so she got the best of both worlds. She got the sort of traditional Republican vote. She got just enough folks in Maine who still believed in this idea of her as, you know, this independent voice that, and then she got this Trump surge vote and it all added up to a landslide. So Republicans benefited up and down the ballot from this Trump surge. I don't know if it's going to be there um, going forward. That's an open question to me. And then just in terms of, you know, what are the two examples since World War II of the opposition party failing to gain seats in a midterm election? It's 1998. You know, it's the, the uh, Republican opposition. They A month before the election, they, they moved to begin the impeachment proceeding as against Clinton. There was a backlash. Democrats gained five uh, seats. Newt was out of speaker. And it's 2002. It's, I mean, it's the it's 9-11. I mean, it's it's the rally around the flag effect of 9-11. And a year later, Bush was still at 70 percent approval rating and Republicans gained seats. Those are the only two examples since World War II of the opposition party failing to gain uh, uh, seats in a midterm election. Well, we can anticipate that something like a hunt for the Obama coalition, which was only ever Barack Obama's coalition, will consume the Republican Party to some extent if they fail to generate the, the Trump surge that they've seen for the last two cycles, two presidential cycles. I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, cross pressures here on everybody because you're mentioning, you know, will Biden figure out some way to make common cause or work with Republicans in the Senate? But if Nancy Pelosi has a three-seat majority in the House, the squad acting together can can torpedo anything that she does. That's four squads, only four people. You know, if you have a three seat majority and, and you go too far to the right, the squad can, you know, and you're handing. So the squads effectively the Joe Manchin of the house. If Joe Manchin causes rightward pressure in the house, the squad causes leftward pressure in. If Manchin's the rightward pressure in the Senate, the squad is the leftward pressure in the house. And then you have just like, what on earth is going to happen? Like only in the things that only the Senate does, like say confirmations, do you have, you know, this question of whether or not some kind of an alliance can be formed? Like I, I was sort of thinking about this in this whole question of, oh my God, you know, can, what can Biden do to appoint people that the Republican Senate will confirm? Um, at A, he, there's no way on earth that he is going to appoint senators from states that are even mildly purple uh, where there where there can be a special election before 2022. Like, that would be crazy, because if you end up, if he ends up either with a 50-50 Senate with Harris breaking the tie or Republicans up by one or two, he can't afford to let that Republican majority grow. So he can't appoint, he could appoint Christian Gillibrand because Cuomo can appoint a successor and that race won't be up till 2022. And in New York, it's unlikely that a Republican could win, although who who knows now, you know, um, anything can happen probably. So you could see that happen or some other things happen, like I guess, you know, he could pick uh, one of the senators from the Pacific Northwest or something like that. But 
you know, so he can't pick there and he can't pick anybody from the House like uh, uh, Trump picked, what, four House members, three House members uh, at the at the outside of the administration. You know, Tom Price. And I mean, I can't even remember who. And they all became um, battlegrounds. They all became they all be, really right, highly right. contested so, battlegrounds. So he can't pick anybody from the House. Uh and there's going to be a problem confirming anybody in the Senate. Like, we are, you know, somebody said to me, you know, the Senate will be inclined to be as deferential to Biden on his nominees, uh, the Republican Senate, as the Democratic Senate was to Trump's nominees. Now, the difference is that the Republicans had a majority in the Senate, and therefore every Democratic vote could go against somebody and they could still get confirmed, you know. By the Republican Senate now, if there's a if there's a Republican Senate against Biden, and the Republicans are looking to for some payback for the fact that every Republican nominee was opposed, not every, but you know a lot of them were opposed on mass. Then I, you know, who's going to be the cabinet? Who's going to make up the cabinet? Well, I mean, presumably Joe Biden will get a cabinet. And we've even seen Republicans like Lindsey Graham who's saying, you know, Donald Trump should still contest every vote, saying, well, also the president deserves to have people he wants to serve with. And especially if they're in the Senate or former senators, that lubricates the process. But what Christine said is probably more I interesting to me. I don't know. Sometimes me. former senators like John Tower was, was a senator. He was appointed uh, secretary of defense and everybody who hated him came out of the woodwork. I mean, to there were, to torpedo his nomination in 1989. Especially if, for example, if they decide to go with Randy Weingarten for education. I mean, I can imagine there are a lot of dirty laundry is going to be aired during the confirmation process. But what Christine said is even more interesting to me because there's now a lot of pressure, as she alluded to, um, for Joe Biden to govern not as he campaigned. For him to go after policies that progressives wanted, but he was reluctant to embrace or downright said that's not going to happen. And for him to jump on, on board with him, Senator Schumer is, is now floating the prospect of canceling up to $50,000 in student debt by executive order. Um, that's the sort of thing that could foment a backlash. Don't but, you think? I mean, but, 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 but what gets to me is, is how does this pressure work functionally? I mean... Aside from the squad, which has, um, as John mentions, so effectively hobbled the Democrats in this sense, <clears throat> there would be no incentive otherwise, really, among Democrats to um, to, to um, obstruct Biden on governing in some sort of moderate way, because because we have seen in election after election now that voters don't want these radical policies. So it is just this, this, you know, this sort of small irritant um, of a, that 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 is the squad that really actually makes things difficult for Democrats if they don't do this. Other than that, they would be they would be smart to 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 actually govern more moderately and and follow through on what Biden um, on Biden's campaign message. But this gets us back to the polling issue and whether there is actually a systemic problem with polling because members of the squad, which, by the way, is now a little bit bigger. Corey Bush considers herself now a member of the squad. It's growing slowly, but it is growing. Um, they can point to polling data that suggests Americans do want Medicare for all, Green New Deal. I mean, this this is part of the problem. when, it, And that's why I mm. think the messaging versus the actual policymaking is really going to be a challenge because 
each side is pointing to polling data that says the American people want our policies. And I think that's why AOC was not being, I think she she truly believes that doubling down on the progressive agenda would be best for the country. Now, she comes from a district where you could run a potential that had a D after its name, it would win. So she's certainly not speaking for the whole country. But the progressive agenda can point to polling data that suggests many Americans are heading in that direction. So that's where the leadership part comes in, right? Biden has to govern with an eye towards whether or not that's the reality or whether that's 10 years in the future and and behave accordingly. Well, you know, we've been through four years of a presidency that was, and I would say actually 12, because I think this was true of Obama also, although in an entirely different direction, an anti-persuasion presidency. That is that, you know, uh, the effectively the president um, asserts what he believes and what he believes his people believe, and then essentially says that the other side doesn't have a leg to stand on, rather than either trying to find compromise or to spend a year making a really hard, long, durable, boring, three yards in a cloud of dust set of arguments to pull the public along so that it decides it likes what it hears. And the the great example of this uh, was the Tax Reform Act of 1986 or 87, 86, which was a year and a half long process. It was bipartisan actually, because Bill Bradley was one of the sponsors of it, along with uh, along with the Reagan administration. But that was a persuasion campaign, and uh, Obama basically with his book coming out tomorrow is yet again asserting that there was no point in him trying to persuade because the Republicans were unpersuadable. But uh, Trump uh, was pretty much exactly the same way. They, they never spent a second trying to persuade anybody of anything. Biden had, and you know, this is what American politics has gotten used to since 2008, in my view, or 2009. And Biden has to take a radically different tack. He doesn't have a mandate. Therefore, for him to get anything done, he kind of has to get a majority of public opinion if if that's measurable properly, on his side to put pressure on their representatives to do what Biden might want them to do. And we're totally out of practice with this as a governing strategy or philosophy. And, I, you know, it's just, you know, a man without a mandate, without a, a Congress to help him, in a, pol- a negative polarized atmosphere is in a terrible position, you know, uh, you know, that's where, you know, and if he then goes to the classic thing that people go to, right, which is executive orders and, you know, and like demonizing the other side, that's fine, which is what, you know, Trump did. And even though he had the House and Senate, he couldn't really get much done. Uh, So he went with the executive orders and attacking Democrats, and it really as we can see, he lost 2018. He lost this time too. So I don't think that's a really good strategy to follow. Uh, but ye, you know, like that's a this is a toughie. And I wouldn't say that Biden is a particularly persuasive arguer. You know, I mean, he's persuasive in his in his own person. Like he. And he ran a brilliant campaign, and anybody who thinks that he didn't is an idiot. Like, this was an amazing political accomplishment on Biden's part to win with all of his liabilities because he found the sweet spot to run in. But uh, 
Steve, as a as a sort of as as a as an amateur or serious like historian of American, I think where Noah was going, I think earlier was this question of does Biden need some kind of exogenous crisis, mm-hmm. which is what Bush got, and which you could argue Clinton got negatively, right? Which is that the exogenous crisis was 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 Monica Gate. And it ended up over the space of 10 months turning to his political advantage, which I don't think anybody expected, Uh, you know, but, but, but there it was. So Biden, Biden may not be able to do this without the world giving him a hand. I think the one thing that's, that's interesting though, is we're talking about how unique the situation is just given how bad the election went for Democrats at every level, except the presidential level. And you think of that, that, that call of uh, democratic uh, house members that got, you know, leaked there with Abigail Spanberger from Virginia telling Democrats, you're going to, you know, you're going to cost me my seat. If you keep talking about defunding the police, I do think there is, you know, sort of psychologically Biden's fellow Democrats, not the squad, but the Spanbergers, the Democrats from seats that are potentially vulnerable are coming into this without any illusions in a way that I think is different than past presidencies of both parties, where, again, usually there is that sense of a mandate, that sense of a honeymoon period, that sense of, you know, Democrats coming in in 2009 with this massive House majority, you know, economic crisis and two straight wave elections and, you know, this sense of like, we're going to do big things here. And, you know, Republicans, I think, to some extent, coming in with Trump the same way in 2017. I think you've got Democrats coming in to a very unique situation here in the House where they, I think, you know, recognize right away that if history is any guide, this is a two term. This is a two year majority that this is (laughs) this is done in two years unless something ahistorical happens. And any Democrat, not just who's clearly vulnerable, just did, you know, just based on barely squeaking by in 2020. But any Democrat in seat, you know, who won by single digits who won within 12 points is looking at history, the history of the last generation saying, you know, I'm in real danger here in 2022. So I think I I do wonder how that's. And the other thing is, too, it's like, you know, so Pelosi, it looks like Pelosi survives. Pelosi will retain the speakership. But I think, again, there's going to be a strong sense that this is a two year proposition and you're going to see something you haven't seen since it's 20 years now since Nancy Pelosi basically got control of the Democratic caucus. I, I covered the House Democrats for roll call way back when she was the minority leader for the first time in 2005, 2006. And the thing that struck me about her back then was she was so skillful at just squeezing out every potential threat, recognizing this person is allied with this person who's allied with this person. And in five years, that could be a threat to me. So I'm going to nip it in the bud right now. I mean, she just did this stuff ruthlessly and methodically, and she insulated herself within the caucus from any potential challenge. And that's continued to be, I think that's changed. I think that's going to change in the next two years. And you're going to see public jockeying for to replace Pelosi, to succeed Pelosi that we just haven't seen in her entire run. And I think that's going to change the dynamic a little bit too. Let me uh, let me let me back off for a second and talk to you about our second sponsor, Headspace. So life can be stressful even under normal circumstances, but 2020 has challenged even the most difficult time. 
it's stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes, and that's Headspace. Your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. Overwhelmed, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by and for parents. Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. Look, you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free month-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Noah, you you were chomping at the bit to say Yeah, because I'm just thinking about it because it might be something of a skeleton key to understand how this election played out. Previously, back to what Steve had said regarding challenges to Nancy Pelosi, they had previously come from her right people like Tim Ryan. Um, and now what we're seeing is sort of facially ridiculous, but nevertheless, uh, you know, dogma that that is uh, useful on the left, folks like Justice Democrats blaming the outcome of this election on Nancy Pelosi's stockpile of Jenny's ice cream in her massive freezer. I mean, that's ridiculous, nonsensical, but it is nevertheless plays into this dynamic that we were talking about before, where Democrats become the GOP circa 2015. You have a restive rump caucus that somehow manages to have accrue much more power than their numbers and their membership should allow because of their opposition and the hold they have over the zeitgeist among base voters. Um, so where are we looking at now in a dynamic in which Nancy Pelosi has become an ally, oddly, of the moderates in her caucus? She is somehow to the right of her caucus. I mean, I, I don't think it's the whole caucus, right? No, but, whole, uh, no but, surely, but, but, but the most, right. but, the, but the most Steve, powerful right. factions. Right, but as Steve indicates, uh, if her particular genius is for the maintenance and preservation of her own power and authority, it'll be interesting to see how she reads that question, how she, how she reads it. Obviously, in 2019, she made a big shift. She did not want to impeach Trump. She was against impeaching Trump, and somehow the relentless logic and pressure of her left flank and the general way in which donors and the party apparatus insisted that it happen made her flip on it. Uh, we, you know, looks like to either no effect or to, you know, possibly slightly bad effect for her caucus. It's hard to know. Um, given that you know no one talked about it after it was over. Uh, one can assume that it really didn't do them that much good. Uh, so we'll learn something, I think, about where that center of gravity is from her behavior. Right? Does that make sense, Steve? Yeah. No, I, I think so. And I think donors, that's – she is um, – it, it's hard to – I think it's impossible to overstate the degree to which she is a fundraising machine on the Democratic side. And so much of, I think, a lot of her shifts in posture, you can sometimes, I think, detect this is there. there is some 
uh, donor component to that too. I think just being mindful of this is, you know, I think she, she sees elections. She, she'll talk all the time about the citizens United decision. She believes the citizens United decision is what cost the Democrats control of the house in 2010, whether you agree with that or not. She talks about it all the time. I think she, she's clearly internalized this and she just, um, you know, her, her background too, before she even ran for office was, was a fundraiser on the democratic side. So, um, she's also channeling, I think she's channeling two things. She's, she's channeling her own reading on the broader politics of it. And she's channeling, I think too, a lot of what sort of moves the donor class. Boy, you can really see with all this conversation, you can really see how vitally crucial to any Democratic hopes in 2021 these Georgia runoff Senate races are. I mean, if they could, and I think the conventional wisdom is that Dem- that Republicans come into this, you know, with the whip hand, if they could pull it off and win those seats, and I guess everybody sort of thinks that those seats are going to stand and fall together. In other words, like if you're going to vote for Ossoff, you're not then not going to vote for Warnock. You know, you're not going to you're not going to split your ticket vote on the fifth of January. If 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 Republicans win two, then they're fifty two forty eight, and they are just a you know it's the wall you know before the zombies show up in Game of Thrones. Like there is no getting through that wall, and if they win. And it's 50-50 with Harris breaking the tie. Everything that we're talking about shifts in a – I mean, it doesn't shift that much because there are breaks on their ambitions like like Manchin. Um, Steve, what's your what's your read of where, where they are uh, in with, you know, not, I guess eight weeks to go? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on – they. it seems likely they both go together. There's a little bit of a history with Georgia where you've had – Twice now, the last two Democratic presidents, you go back to Bill Clinton in 92, he carried Georgia by a very small margin and the Senate race in Georgia. This was way back then. It was Weiss Fowler, the Democrat, um, surprisingly fell to 49.8 percent on election night in 92 and got sent into a runoff unexpectedly. And this was about a month after the 92 election. You know, Bill Clinton won the presidency, won Georgia. And this was the first big test of you know, did Bill Clinton really have a mandate? And every national political figure came into Georgia for the Weiss Fowler, Paul Coverdell runoff. And the message that Coverdell, you know, ran on, and he, he ran on the, you know, he by a couple points, was basically this Democratic president needs a check. And yeah, Georgia, you liked him, you voted for him, but you don't want to give him a, a, a blank check here. You want to have a check on him. And Coverdell won the the uh, the runoff. And, you know, there was also, if you go back to, to 2008, when Barack Obama won, he didn't carry Georgia. Um, you know, he had done a little better than, than Democrats had been doing in Georgia, but you had a Georgia runoff then as well. And that was one that would have given Democrats, uh, that would have given the incoming Obama administration a 60 seat majority, a super majority in the Senate if they had won that. And the runoff wasn't even close. That was 58 42. You know, the Republicans held the seat. So you've got that, you know, twice now you've had the new Democratic president immediately lose, have his party lose a Georgia runoff. I think it's a, it, the expectation is the Republicans win because. There's, I think there's a sense of, can the Democrats put that coalition together that just barely got Biden over the top? Can they put it together for a non-presidential race? And the other component of it that I think everybody's watching for is those suburbs around Atlanta and then the exurbs where you started to see this as well. Is there an indication in the vote that that vote starts to move back to the Republicans? Because that's where that's where the slippage was. You, you look at that, it's this rung, it's about you know, 30, 40 miles outside Atlanta. 
You saw a bunch of like Cherokee County, Georgia, for example. These are places Republicans have typically won by 50 points that Trump was winning by about 30 or 35. And that's actually that was the growth. That was what Biden actually, you know, that was the add on that got him the state. Does that go back to 50 in the runoff? You know, because I think that would indicate too that places like that around the country, that would be a very hopeful sign for Republicans, you know, looking ahead to the next two years that they can win back these voters who only defected when it came to Trump. But th- so this is really a technical challenge. This is the test of whether or not we are going to be hearing about Stacey Abrams for the next 30 years, because if they can get people out, if they can get in a special where you figure, you know, turnout's going to drop by 40% or something like that over what happened on election day. If Stacey Abrams can get those people that she registered new out and they can get a huge urban turnout and the, and the, and the, uh, a lot of these people either stay or might stay home that you're talking about or, you know, or vote Republican, but maybe not just the numbers that they need. Maybe they can just cross the finish line uh, with Democrats. Although I got to say, because Raphael Warnock, the Democrat who was running against David Perdue, uh, was certain to go into a runoff, either was going to win or lose, but was going to go into a runoff, they got a lot of oppo on him. There's a lot of stuff that is now starting to drop, anti-Semitic stuff, I mean, anti-Israel stuff, let's say. You know, Jeremiah Wright, pro-socialism, like, it's just like... And the, the did the he perfect. or did he not run over his wife is kind of a big one that yeah. may may right. resonate yeah. a little bit with voters right. down the line. Then, but that was that was another one. I mean, this runoff race was another one where the polls were just wrong, just terribly wrong. Raphael Warnock ended this race with a, you know, you can pick your average, but just to go with real clear politics as a, as a metric here, he ended the race with a, he was over his opponents by 15 and a half points and finished up six. And it was a real drop off. And John Ossoff has already essentially been defeated. He ran behind Joe Biden by a full point and a half in this state. So, I mean, again, if this just obviously it comes down to whether or not does the, the message is, does the Biden administration deserve a check in the form of a Republican Senate? And that's probably a resonant message. But these results, yeah, I mean, Republicans already won these two races, barring events, barring something, you know, that really changes this dynamic. They're in the pole but, position. Right. But special elections really are machine. They're, I mean, Obviously, the message is very clear for Republicans and therefore very easy to sell the message. But you really are talking about whether or not Stacey Abrams and Democrats in the state have built a machine that can get people to go back to the polls two months after Election Day. And that that's the test. Like, I, I don't know that there's any way to model turnout, right? I mean, Steve, is there a way that people actually model turnout in a special like this? If there are two races and after Biden unexpectedly wins the state, uh, whatever, even that's not expected because they were, I guess they were, it was a jump, considered a jump ball going into election day, but. No, right. And you just, it, it's, there are nine counties, there's Fulton County and then eight around it. If you just look at the map of Georgia, it's amazing because there's just this blue island, essentially, in the Atlanta metro area. And uh, in 2016, Hillary Clinton won these nine counties by 29 points. In 2018, Stacey Abrams won them by 36. And in 2020, Joe Biden won them by 38. 
And by losing the rest of the state by like 40 points, this is where the Democrats get all their votes. And they just keep squeezing more and more and more out of the Atlanta metro area. And I think the one thing you hear from Democrats, if you want to get their hopeful interpretation on on how they could win January 5th, they basically will tell you, well, Trump um, creates a crisis between now and January 5th with election results and, and who knows what. And, and that base, that Atlanta metro base that I'm describing is just as, if not even more motivated to get out because of that. I'm so thrilled that we got to get you onto counties in Georgia. Like this is this is what made this is this is what made you an icon two weeks ago. This is why Leslie Jones was screaming your name when she dared to go over to the board. This is everything that we could have possibly wanted from this podcast. So thank you, Steve, for joining us. It was a great conversation. We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Noah, and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. Thank you.